Now that Absalom has been executed and disgracefully buried by Joab and his men, the news comes to David concerning the fate of his son. This is the 40th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. We're all current reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 18. I'll be reading chapter 18 and then in chapter 19, segueing into chapter 19, the first four verses. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning by inspiration of God. 2 Samuel chapter 18, this is the word of God unto us. And David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Job and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth. For if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die, will they care for us. But now thou art worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best I will do? The king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Job and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under a thick bough of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Job said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest him, and why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged thee and Abishai in Ittai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life, for there is no matter hid from the king, and thou thyself wouldest have set thyself against me. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee, And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bear Job's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing after Israel for Job held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled every one to his tent. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar which is in the king's dale for he said I have no son to keep my name in remembrance and he called the pillar after his own name and it's called unto this day Absalom's place then said Ahamaz the son of Zadok let me now run and bear the king tidings how that the Lord had avenged him of his enemies and Job said unto him 
Thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to Cushai, Go tell the king what thou hast seen. And Cushai bowed himself unto Joab and ran. Then said Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, But howsoever, let me, I pray thee, also run after Cushai. And Joab said, Wherefore wilt thou run, my son, seeing that thou hast no tidings ready? But howsoever, said he, let me run. And he said unto him, Run. Then Ahamaz ran by the way of the plain and overran Cushai. And David sat between two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof, over the gate, unto the wall, and lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king, and the king said, If he be alone, there is tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running alone. And the king said, He also bringeth tidings. And the watchman said, Methinketh the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man, and cometh with good tidings. And Ahamaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahamaz answered, When Job sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. And the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, Cushai came. And Cushai said, Tidings, my lord, the king. For the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord, the king, and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people, for the king heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city, his people being ashamed, steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. To the Galatians, the Apostle Paul, one verse only, verse 13 of chapter 3, by the same Spirit. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower there fades away, but God's word stands this day in our hearing for our admonition and our hope. Even though the king very clearly commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai to do no harm to Absalom and to take the king's son alive. Once Absalom was in Joab's reach, he 
shot him through with three darts, anticipating that his armor men, his armor bearer men, would then finish the job. And they did so. Ten of his armor bearers converged upon Absalom to deal the final blow. Now at the outset, there were a number of issues which seem to be of interest here. First, did David really think that Joab would capture Absalom alive and bring him to the king? Did he, did he really think that, knowing Joab? From David's response as to his son's assassination, which was actually an execution of sorts, we must conclude that he actually trusted that Joab would bring Absalom back to the king alive and his commandment would be obeyed. But that brings us to another question. It begs another question. Why would he trust Joab? He, he certainly knew Joab. Joab was not really a trustworthy man. Certainly he had shown himself to be a cunning man, a, a murderous man in the past. David knew that. Why trust him now? David himself thought him to be a hard man, someone that he could not control. Why trust Joab now? Why tell Joab, don't hurt my son, as if to say, I know you, you'll do the right thing and you'll bring him to me alive. And yet David seems to have trusted Joab not to kill his son Absalom. Now I believe, drawing from the scripture, there's always practical lessons here. We should only trust those who have a track record of trustworthiness. That's painfully simple. Those who have shown themselves to be trustworthy, consistent in their fidelity, their loyalty, those are the people whom we are to trust. Otherwise, we should be very careful as to whether or not to trust those with a questionable track record, especially when it comes to critical issues. Trust those who are trustworthy, those whom you know, those who have already been your counselor or someone that you know has counseled others, leading them into the right direction. Moreover, trust is something that must be earned. Joab certainly did not earn any trust from David. So trust must be something that is earned. And that's what we should be doing. We should be earning people's trust. We should be trustworthy individuals. Because trust is one of the most precious character commodities that a person can have. And it's also a very, very fragile thing. You know, once you break trust, once you break confidence with someone, it's really difficult to get it back. It's very fragile and can easily be destroyed. The second consideration is this. Was David correct in even considering Joab to bring Absalom back to him alive? Should he have even allowed him to go into the battle after Absalom? Now, to answer this depends on what David's reason was. Did David want to bring Absalom for trial, for treason? Was he thinking, bring him to me alive, I'll bring him here to go to trial for treason? If that was David's motivation, then perhaps his reasoning to bring Absalom to justice was valid. But if David wanted to grant Absalom pardon which is what I believe Joab might have suspected, then his request for bringing his son home alive without any consequence may not have been the right motivation for bringing him alive. David was well aware the penalty for Absalom's crime was in fact death. Therefore, he may have actually wanted to go easy on his son. Joab probably knew this, especially since David had a track record of mercy when justice, at least in, in Joab's mind, where justice, of course, 
Should have prevailed. It did not prevail. David was very soft in some issues, especially when it concerned his children. Remember Amnon. Remember Tamar. Remember all of these issues that David was a little bit soft on. So if that is the case, Joab may have already determined that if he did catch up with Absalom, he wouldn't hesitate for a moment in executing him in the name of justice. And once again, this is where we connect Job with the the law of God, the type, a type of the law of God, especially as it's been pointed out that Job's ten armor bearers may even have represented the ten commandments that Absalom violated, because really, Absalom violated all of the commandments. Perhaps a more pressing question is, was Joab actually justified in executing Absalom? Was he actually justified? Well, if Joab symbolizes the law of God, then he was in his right to kill Absalom. But consider why Absalom should have had his life forfeited, and that long ago. Why was it right for Absalom to have his life forfeited? First, you remember Absalom, in cold blood, murdered his brother Amnon through a calculated act of betrayal and cold-blooded murder. Absalom killed his own brother. That in itself, at that point, in and of itself, was worthy of death, according to the law of God. Even if the penalty for Amnon's crime warranted death, it was not Absalom's place to execute that judgment. But as we have also learned, Amnon's crime did not warrant death. Amnon's rape of Tamar did not warrant the death penalty. And this is what is so confusing about David's response to Amnon's crime. Amnon did not have to die. He only had to either, according to the law, he only had to either pay a bride price or marry Tamar. Why then, that's the question that we have to ask, why then didn't David exact that justice instead of no justice? And that's very confusing. Why did the king not at least do that? It wouldn't have taken the the man's life, it would have restored Tamar and justice would have been served and maybe then Absalom would not have had to think he needed to murder his brother. But in Absalom's mind, however, Amnon's refusal to make any restitution whatsoever for the terrible act against his sister Tamar, in his mind, and I say this, in his perversion of justice, he believed that his brother Amnon should die. And yet, we don't read anywhere at this point in history that Absalom was ordained as a judge, which would have made him a lesser magistrate, which would have given him the right to bring Amnon to justice. But that justice would not have been a capital offense. But that's not what... Absalom wanted, Absalom wanted to kill his brother. His act of murder was actually not an act of capital execution of justice. It was actually vengeance. And this also shows how ignorant of the law Absalom really was to think that killing Amnon was just. Maybe he didn't think that killing Amnon was just. Maybe he said, I want vengeance. And that's just the end of it. So he pulls out all the stops and he goes against the law of God and against even over practicality and calculating, after two years of calculating, kills his brother. The second point, Absalom was an insurrectionist. 
and he proceeded to take up arms against his father, the rightful king. That was treason. That's a capital offense. It was a violation of the law of God as cited in Deuteronomy chapter 21, 18 and 21. Notice what Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 says. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, and we're talking about an adult son here, not a child, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. So this is talking about child rearing. If the child will not listen to mother and father, it must be brought to the session. The child must be brought before the elders of the church to be disciplined, whether he's old or he's young. You cannot control your children. They must be brought to the elders. Moses continues, And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now that shows that he is an adult in this case. And all the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Absalom was in violation of this. Absalom was also in violation of the law when he lay with his father's concubines. We read this in Leviticus chapter 18. And remember, we're asking the question, was Absalom guilty of a capital offense? And we've already shown, yes, in these statutes, yes. But it continues, Leviticus 18, beginning in 16. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. Neither shalt thou take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, for they are her near kinswoman. It is wickedness. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. Also, thou shalt not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is put apart for her uncleanness. Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. That's against the law. This is what Absalom did. Absalom was also guilty of deceit and evil statecraft. And while all of these may not have been capital crimes in and of themselves, they led to capital activities, criminal activities with capital executional offenses since they were setting the stage for crimes against Israel, David, the king, and God himself. So Absalom is guilty. Now once Absalom is killed, God reveals to us just how prideful the man was in verse 18. Notice verse 18. Now, Absalom in his lifetime, notice the pride. He thought he was something. He thought he knew better than God. He knew better than his king. He knew better than everyone else. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and is called unto this day Absalom's place. Now why would David's son Absalom do this? Well, he's setting the stage for a dynastic continuance of his name. This we're going to see later on, again and again and again. And we saw this in the book of the Judges. God will have no dynasty other than the dynasty of Christ's kingdom and his people. 
But this is what Absalom wanted. He had no children. He had no heir. We'll see that in a moment. And he wanted a dynastic kingdom for himself. So he rears up a pillar. And that pillar was a shameful thing for Israel to see finally. Note first Absalom's desire to set up an idol for himself, to rise up and raise this monument to this man's honor in the king's valley. Notice he does it in the king's valley, in the face of the king. That was a bold move. In fact, it was highly disrespectful toward his father. Children, if you do not respect your mother and your father, you are doing exactly what Absalom did. Respect to mother and father is essential. These are the lessons from history that we read here in the scriptures. So mother and father, when your children disrespect you, you are to stand your ground in the name of the Christ of God and reprove them for disrespecting. Furthermore, not only did Absalom disrespect his father, he disrespected his father publicly. I remember my wife used to tell my children, if you embarrass me in public, I will embarrass you in public. That seemed to work every time. So this was a disrespectful move in public because he placed his personal monument in the king's valley as if he should be considered the king. We also learn that Absalom was deprived of fatherhood. He had no children. He was without an heir. We read nothing of his children. In fact, we see that he had no children. Now, in God's wise providence, notice, God withholds a son from Absalom so that once Absalom is dead, there would be no heir to contend for the kingdom as it was in Saul's day with Ishbosheth. So once Absalom is done away with, it was perceived by Joab, of course, and by others, perhaps, that the kingdom would then now be at peace. You get rid of the contention and people are at peace. At least that's what was thought. Perhaps Joab thought that. And he wanted to take matters into his own hands in order to be at peace once again. Now as for the man Joab, his actions were not justified. He was not to be the judge. David was to be the judge. Now even though Absalom had to die, Job was not the one that should have killed him. We know this from the testimony of the others in verse 13, who would not dare to go against the king's commandment, lest they bring upon themselves the wrath of the king and their own integrity by disobeying the king's commandment. But Job wasn't afraid of the king. He wasn't afraid of David. It was more David was afraid of Joab. Now once Absalom is dead, which is bad enough, he's buried in a very disrespectful manner, and the entire Israeli army retreats to their homes. Consider the next several verses, beginning in verse 19 of Second Samuel 18. Then said the son of Zadok, let me now run and bear the king's tidings and how the Lord had avenged him of his enemies. So even they were saying, well look, this is a good thing. God has been involved in this, avenging the enemies of our king. And Joab said unto him, Thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Then said Joab to Cushai, You go tell the king what thou hast seen. And Cushai bowed himself unto Joab and ran. Now, hearing that Absalom's army is defeated, Ahamaz asks Joab, that he be the one to tell the king about what happened. 
But Joab forbids him to bring the news to David. Now from the text, Joab clearly tells him that Absalom, we read from that Absalom is dead. He knew that Absalom was dead, but he asks him to wait. Now, now you have to understand the situation here. The entire army of Israel is very happy. They were not destroyed. They were they were thinking that they were going to be dis- destroyed. Now, I'm talking about the uh, David's Israeli army, the, the ones from Judah. They were very happy because they thought that Absalom's army would kill them. That's why they didn't want David to go into battle. So they were all very excited. They wanted to tell the king the good news. So instead, Joab asked Cushai to privately tell the king what happened. Now, why would he tell Cushai and not the son of Zadok the priest? Well, the Reverend Scott, he surmises this. He says, quote, Perhaps one motive which induced Ahamaz to desire to carry David the first news of the victory was that he might gradually prepare his mind for the intelligence of Absalom's death. For though he rejoiced in David's deliverance, he sympathized with him in his grief, and for this purpose he evaded the king's question, which Cushai soon after indirectly but more plainly replied to. The piety of the language, both of Ahamas and Cushai, on this occasion are worthy of notice and imitation. In fact, they didn't want to just say, hey, by the way, we killed your son. No, they wanted to just gently open this up. So even though Zadok's son might inform the king in a gentler fashion than Cushai, both men show themselves to be very kind to the king, respecting the king's feelings and the way in which they divulge the news of Absalom's demise. And so both men run to tell the king the situation, but of course uh, the priest's son, being a faster runner, overtakes Cushai and meets the king. This is not to the liking of Joab. For whatever reason, he wanted the truth plainly told to David by Cushai. Maybe he was trying to say, hey, you should have dealt with your son in the first place. Now I have to deal with him. We don't know why, but maybe that was it. You know the character of Joab. Try to get into his head a little bit, and maybe that's what he was thinking. We read this in verse 22. Then said Amaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, but Howsoever, let me, notice he's begging, I want to go, let me, I pray thee, also run after Cushai and Job, say, wherefore wilt thou run, my son, seeing that thou hast no tidings ready, and yet he wanted to run. So he presses Job to the point where Job says, finally, go, go. But in verse, 30, in verse 23, but howsoever, said he, let him, let me run, and he said, run. He finally says, go ahead, run. But he runs faster than Cushai. He overtakes him in the plain. And once in the presence of the king, the two of them begin to tell of the news. And we see the situation here in 24. Now notice in verse 24, David is sitting between the two gates. And David sat between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall and lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king. And the king said, if he be alone, there's tidings in his mouth. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the porter and said, Behold, another man is running alone. And the king said, He also brings tidings. And the watchman said, We think that the running is, is like the running of Amos, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man. He must be coming with good tidings. You see, David at this point is trusting that no one killed his son because he commanded it. So obviously there's got to be something good here. So Zadok's son calls out, All is well. And you would think, well, 
all is really not well, Absalom is dead. But you see, in David's army's mind, they got victory. It's This is great. All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king, said, Blessed be the Lord thy God. Notice, blessed be the Lord thy God, because it was God who delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. The first thing that is to be noticed here is that the king is seated in between the two gates. This is where the king would sit to judge. It wasn't his throne in Jerusalem. It was indeed a place where he would sit as judge within the nation's public square. Obviously, he sat there awaiting the news of the battle. Perhaps he was ready prepared to pass judgment on Absalom since he anticipated the man to be brought to him alive. That's what he commanded. Why would he think otherwise? Or perhaps, which was Joab's fear, perhaps he sat there to grant pardon to his son. And we don't know what the king's intention was. All we know is that at this point, David is ready to pass some form of judgment. The possibility of the king's leniency in judgment may have been on Joab's mind and may even have encouraged him to take matters into his own hands. Of course, we'll never know what judgment David would have passed since judgment was passed on Absalom by by Joab in the heat of the battle. Nevertheless, David is prepared to judge. He's finally going to do what he thinks is right. Now, we don't know what that is. We'll never know what that is. But we knew from the scripture that it was God's will that he would be executed. And so the news finally arrives, but all is not well, as far as the king is concerned, by the declaration of Zadok's son that all is well refers to the fact that the insurrection was put down and the rebellious army has been vanquished. That was good news for Israel, but it wasn't good news for the king. That was not what he was concerned about. Notice, David's concern is misguided. He's more concerned with the fate of his rebellious son Absalom than the fate of the entire army that was in exile with him. He's misguided in his priorities. And so he asks, not... Is everyone okay? My warriors, are they all right? No. Is the son safe? And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Could you imagine you're coming with good news that you're not going to be killed by the wicked insurrectionists? You've fought for the king. You've been faithful to the king. You come with news that the enemy's vanquished. David... We're not going to be destroyed. You're going to regain the kingdom. God has been good. God has been good. We've been victorious. Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, enough of that. But uh, what about my son? And Zedek's son answers and says, When Joab sent the king's servant, and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. So that's that's a curious response. He acts as if he doesn't know what's going on or is unwilling to say, especially because I think he was taken off his his excitement he wanted to say, yeah, yeah, everything's good. Everyone's vanquished. He said, yeah, what about my son? And he's like, uh-oh. I don't want to distress the king. I'm not going to be the one. From previous verses, we know that he did know. But he chooses to remain ignorant and vague because he doesn't want to say it clearly. 
until Cushai brings the sorrowful news. Verse 30. And the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, Cushai came. And Cushai said, Tidings, my lord, the king, for the lord had avenged thee this day, all of them that rose up against thee. Note how Cushai gives credit for the outcome of the battle to the Lord so that David would understand whatever happened is providentially orchestrated by God's directing hand. And this was proper, for that is why David's army was victorious, because it was God's will. Cushai is very cunning, because that response is not just saying, well, you know, your son's dead. No, here's what God is doing. He's avenging us. All of those who rose up against us, he's there, he's on the battlefield with us. How could you fault us for the outcome? How can you fault any outcome since the outcome was the Lord's? So how could David fault the outcome since it was the Lord's? So Cushai first, very cunningly, he gives credit to the Lord, not only because it was true, but because it might ease the hurt that David was going to have to experience concerning Absalom's death. Now that's a very kind gesture. And it says something about the care that these men had for their beloved David. They loved this man. They didn't want to hurt him. They didn't want to just say, you know, we got him. Yeah, we got that kid. Those, that, that dirty, rotten, stinking scallywag. We got him. We killed him. He was killed in the tree and we got him. No, no, no. They didn't want to hurt David. Now this reminds me of the time when Aaron's sons, the first day on the job, the first day on the job that they're going to be priests to God, They were told to bring the fire of the Lord that the Lord had given them to put on the altar. But they knew better than God. Oh, they know better than God. Reminds me of many Christians this day. Oh, they all know better than God. So they bring their own fire. And they place it on the altar. And the fire of God, the holy fire of God, descends upon the altar and consumes them in a moment before the face of all Israel. In the face of their father. In the face of their mother, their sisters, their brothers, their kinsmen. But they knew better than God. So they are destroyed by the fire of God for their rebellion against the commandment of God by bringing strange fire upon God's holy altar. We read this in chapter 10 of Leviticus. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord. That's sort of like offering strange doctrines from the pulpit today. What to God that fire would drop from heaven today to consume the pulpits of the heretics. That's not the way God works today. But that would wake some people up. And offered strange fire before the Lord, which He commanded them not. And there went out a fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord in a blatant disregard for the explicit commandments of God concerning worship. These two men on the very first day of their priestly duties thinking they knew better than God bring strange fire that the Lord commanded them not to do. And as a result... God kills them, directly kills them with the fire of God and devours them up before Moses and everyone else. Naturally, Aaron is not well pleased. He had hope for these boys. He had plans for his sons. He loved his sons. Now we can infer that after this terrible act, 
Aaron, not being well pleased, had much to say by the fact that after Moses spoke to him, he held his peace. Now note how Moses points back, in the same way Cushai does, points back to the Lord's will as to the reason why Aaron should not complain and that Aaron should accept the fate that God had determined for his sons for their apostasy in the same way that Cushai points to the Lord's will so that David would accept Absalom's fate. And notice chapter 10, verse 3 of Leviticus. And Moses said unto Aaron, and you could just imagine, Aaron's like, what's going on here? What, what happened here? And Moses said unto Aaron, this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. In other words, this is God's will. I'm going to be sanctified. You're not going to put strange fire on the altar. I'm going to be sanctified. It's not about you, Aaron. And then the next line in the same verse says this, and Aaron held his peace. What does that tell you? He was complaining. He said, what's going on? Why did God do this? Because God will be sanctified. God will be sanctified. And Aaron realized that is true and he held his peace. David, when hearing of Absalom's death, should have held his peace. But he plainly asks, is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai has to tell him, with great care, the enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. Now hearing that news, David responds, in verse 33, and the king was much moved. Now that's natural. I, I understand. That's a natural response. The king was much moved and went up to the chamber of the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Natural. But the next line would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now there are several issues here to unpack concerning David's response. First, again, natural, understandable, even typical of a father that loved his son and probably had hoped that he would be king one day. To that we cannot fault David. And yet it is interesting to note that it seems as if David was more concerned with Absalom's death than the fact that the entire nation of Israel was spared the threat of decimation, the threat of decimation by the insurrection of Absalom. He was more concerned about his son. The Reverend Scott weighs in again. Notice what he says. David's grief was doubtless extravagant and very faulty. He ought to have been thankful for his own deliverance and for that of Israel and to have submitted with silent patience to the righteous judgment of God upon his son. But he was a man of warm passions. He had inordinately loved a very unworthy object who was cut off in the midst of his crimes. David's lamentation is pathetic and it should move even the hardest of hearts. And when you, when you, when you read this, you can't help but have compassion upon this man. The Hebrew goes something like this. Bene Absalom. Bene Absalom. Absalom. Bene, bene. Would to God I would have died in your place. You can't help but be moved. But even here, 
Absalom's name is ironic because Ab in Ab Shalom means father. Shalom means peace. Put together, Absalom means the father of peace and yet he is anything but peaceful. David is bearing the culmination consequences. The culminating consequences of his sin of adultery, deceit and murder in addition to his leniency. This is part condemning his leniency in respect of proper judgment according to the law of God. And while this historical event is given for our learning, it has gospel implications. Because if we regard David as a type of the Lord Christ, Absalom as a type of Adam the Son of God, and Job as a type of the law, we can begin to see the gospel emerge from this story. Because when, Ab, because when Adam sinned, he sought to be the king of the world. He wanted to be king. He wanted to be God. He was originally the federal head. He was the father. Becoming the father of deceit, becoming the father of lies, but originally he was the father of the world. He represented God to the world. That world before the fall was at peace. He was in Absalom. But once Adam rebelled, he became the father of war, much like Absalom. And even though Adam, as the son of God and natural heir of the world, as Absalom was the son of David, set to naturally inherit the kingdom, if only he obeyed, he decided rather to rebel and take the kingdom by violence. That's what Adam did. He wanted to take the kingdom by violence. Adam, like Absalom, were rebels and perpetuated treason against the king. And like Adam, Absalom amasses an army of unregenerate rebels against God in the same way that Absalom violated the king's concubines. Adam violated the remnant of Christ's church by violating their purity when he rebelled because in the loins of Adam were all the elect and they were plunged into darkness because of his treason. As the child's little book says, in Adam's fall we sinned all. David's lamentation of Absalom may be likened to God's lamentation of Adam saying that he would have died in his place. And he actually did, did he not? What is interesting about all of this is that Christ did die in the place of his remnant who were originally enemies and adversaries in the loins of, of Adam in the same way Absalom and Adam were enemies and adversaries. One further consideration is this. If the comparisons between Adam and Absalom are accurate, I guess we have to ask this question. Was there any hope for Absalom as a person? A lot of people want to know, did Adam, was Adam saved? Uh, what about this one or that one just at the end of their life? So uh, a natural question is, just before the end, was Absalom, if he's a type of Adam, was Absalom at the end of his life redeemed? Now, we are persuaded that Adam was redeemed even though he destroyed the human race by his rebellion, by the fact that God made both Adam and Eve tunics from the slaying of an animal by which blood had been shed. The Reverend Scott likens Absalom in a real way to Adam, but he likes to believe, and I'm willing to entertain his ideas, but Reverend Scott likes to believe that Absalom could have been redeemed right at the end, even though he admits that this is pure speculation. I did 
however, like what he said, and I wanted to share that with you, because he asked this question. Is there any hope for the soul of this profligate young man? He said, no hope for him. He died in his iniquity. But is it not possible that he implored the mercy of his maker while he hung in the tree? And is it not possible that the mercy of God was extended to him? And was not that suspension a respite to the end that he might have had time to consider the wrath of divine justice? This is at least a charitable conjecture. And humanity will delight in such a case to lay hold even on possibilities. If there be any room for hope in such a death, who that knows the worth of an immortal soul would not wish to indulge in it? Now, of course, I'm not so sure I would agree with this, but it is a kind gesture, nevertheless. The only reason why I might even consider it is because of the connection between Adam and Absalom. Consider, finally, the effect of the leader of the nation, that effect that he had upon the people. And remember, leaders have an effect. Their responses do affect nations. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day, notice, and the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city as people being ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. You see, David's constant lamentation made the people ashamed. But the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, of course, this was entirely unacceptable to Joab who was about to take issue with the king over his behavior. We will consider that next when we continue on an exposition of Second Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.